Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all the podcasts they have to offer over at Osiris Pod. Their collection is outstanding and we are thrilled to be among them. That is OsirisPod.com. In this episode, I present to you an interview with the author of Song Noir, Tom Waits and the Spirit of Los Angeles, Alex Harvey. Alex is a producer and director of programs, including Panorama and The Late Show for the BBC. His films include The Lives of Animals and Enter the Jungle. Based in Los Angeles, he regularly writes on literature, film, and music for the London Review of Books and the Los Angeles Review of Books. And it turns out he's a complete expert in the early days of Tom Waits' musical career in Los Angeles. As his book, Song Noir, examines the formative first decade of Tom Waits' career when he lived, wrote, and recorded nine albums in Los Angeles from his soft, folk-inflected debut entitled Closing Time in 1973 to the abrasive, surreal Swordfish Trombones in 1983. Starting his songwriting career in the 70s, Waits absorbed Los Angeles' wealth of cultural influences. Combining the spoken idioms of writers like Kerouac and Bukowski, with jazz blues rhythms, he explored the city's literary and film noir traditions to create hallucinatory dreamscapes. Waits mined a rich seam of the city's low-life locations and characters, letting the place feed his dark imagination. Mixing the domestic with the mythic, Waits turned quotient, autobiographical details into something more disturbing and emblematic, a vision of Los Angeles as the warped, narcotic heart of his nocturnal explorations. In this episode, Alex and I set the scene for the listeners and talk about the LA of Tom Waits' early years and what it was like there at the time. We talk about how the beat writers like Kerouac and Bukowski influenced Tom Waits' work, and we discuss the character of Frank that Tom brought to life over a trilogy of albums. We discuss his acting career that blossomed in his later days in Los Angeles and how the city became more of a trap than a means of escape for Waits and a whole lot more. I have no doubt you're going to enjoy this interview with Alex Harvey. Cross the margin. Cross the margin. podcast can you hear me i can perfectly how are you good well not too bad good although i'm i'm, I'm gonna have to um talk to you in this slightly weird posture because i've i've cut myself shaving oh. so as soon, soon as i release this um small piece of tissue paper yep. i will be covered in blood which <laughs> Given the nature of my book, Song Noir, and Tom Waits' oeuvre, <laughs> is entirely appropriate. <laughs> this completely yeah. works. I like how A huge artery will spurt forth blood at you at screen. So I apologize for that in advance. I've yet, I've yet to have a podcast where, where blood was in the mix. So this is exciting. Yeah. Blood <laughs> on the track. Literally. <laughs> I really... Uh, I appreciate it. I love this book. I really, it was Thank so, you. it was so exciting being transported to 
the LA of that time. And I'm excited to talk about how it was so different and everything and just kind of get into Tom's world, which is something, yes. you know, I've loved Tom's music for a while, but I didn't really know uh, in this type of detail that you put forth what, what, you know, kind of what birthed them and birthed his early music. And that was the city and his influences there. Well, so absolutely. I'm excited to get into it. Absolutely. Well, the genesis of the book was essentially was me moving to Los Angeles, which I did uh, 14 years ago. And like yourself, I was a, a long-term lover of, 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 of Tom's music. Mm. And it was only about the fact that I was living literally uh, just away from Coenga Boulevard. Mm. And suddenly, oh, you know, calling down Coenga on a broken pair of legs as the lyric from Heart Attack and Vine goes. And um, I realized how um, much the city had inspired him or how much you know, his work is littered with references mm -hmm. to the to the, the city, particularly the early years. So it it sent me back to the first decade of his of his creative life, and I realised then, you know, artist he, he was, and it made so much more sense in a way in terms of, um, I suppose, all the different influences that went into making the young tom waits tom waits you know yeah yeah let's set this let's set the um kind of the scene a little bit and and talk about that la that was inspiring to him and that like it really it inoculates his work um you know that la does not exist anymore and it'd be fun to hear you talk a little bit about what it's like what it was yeah like. no I'm Absolutely. I think that it was um, obviously the 70s and the 80s were, I think, a lot, um, it was a lot more violent and, and dark uh, a city, uh, more of a city of extremes. Um, perhaps I think the, the, the key point really was in the 90s when after, you know, um, uh, Rodney King and the riots there, there was a kind of a concerted effort from the city authorities to change the, mm -hmm. the image of L.A., um, with investment in public uh, cultural institutions and, and so forth. But I mean, you know, he grew up in not, you know, poverty at all. I and mean, he grew up in a suburb of LA, which Whittier of greater LA, which is very much kind of middle class and um, slightly dull. I mean, it was famous for being the, the birthplace of Richard Nixon, not something that I think Waits would want to kind of boast about and it's kind of as near to the midwest as um as la greater la gets yeah. uh the shot back the future there that'll give hmm. you an idea of how sort of anodyne it can kind of you know double for iowa yeah. um he though had an extraordinarily kind of rich family and an opposed uh family background his mother i think is quite kind of religious and um uh upright whereas his father was this really quite dissolute drinker and became an alcoholic a school teacher who loved uh mariachi bands and and mexican um or latino culture and so these two sides if you like of of of, of weights um are there in his parents um are there very much opposed they were divorced um, his father left um, when Waits was nine or ten very early on mm. and his mother then moved away from LA and moved the family, his sisters, two sisters and, and Tom was therefore the only man as mm. it were within this this sort of 
um, matriarchal setup. Yeah. Started very early on as a teenager wearing his father's old suits. You know, this is the kind of 60s when everyone else is going around in sort of tie-dye. And he yeah. he he liked kind of listening to, you know, Jerome Kerm and the the kind of great American songbooks. He would talk with his friends' dads about their Sonata record collection, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is very much the kind of picture of of a of a strange adolescent in a, in a way, slightly out of his time. Yeah. He said that he, you know, he finally made the trip up to uh, San Francisco when, you know, at the height of sort of hate Ashbury mm. and sort of the, you know, the kind of peace that, and yeah. love generation. But he was more interested, of course, in Kerouac mm. and the sort of city lights and the, the, the moment of the beats, which, you know, was um, 10 years earlier, really. Mm. Um, I think Kerouac, I, I've tried to bring this out in my book, I yeah. think he, he says at one point, Kerouac kind of saved me as many young male, you know, adolescents find Kerouac sure. as much for the idea of um, of art being, you know, truthful to one's kind of experience. You go on the road, you search for these sort of epiphanies, if you like, these moments of beatitude. Yeah. Um and you must be true. You know, the, you know, art must have a kind of truth quota. That that's kind of key. Mm-hmm. And he took that very much to heart. Um, hence, when he became a performer, he wanted to kind of explore that side, that mm-hmm. that dark side, that, and felt really you had to kind of live that life if you were going to you know, write up later on because he he felt that he had to kind of literally live next door to kind of pimps and uh, drug dealers and so on. This is the famous Tropicana Hotel in, in West Hollywood where he, he moved in literally to kind of observe the life that he was then channeling in his lyrics. So later, of course, he said, you know, you, know, you don't have to be, a, you know, an axe murderer to write about <laughs> axe murder. Uh, so, so he breaks at the end of my book, at the end of this sort of decade of living, uh, really on the on that kind of uh, the the sort of noirish uh, extremes of of, of LA. Mm. He moves away. He he yeah. finds someone he he wants to kind of spend his life with and settle down with Kathleen Brennan, who becomes his wife. And he moves off. But so I, I deliberately choose, if you like, these 10 years, mm-hmm. which are his 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 um his early creative uh, foundation. Yeah. And and what a, and what a, what creativity? I mean he records nine original albums yeah. in these 10 years, yeah. which is an astonishingly uh I think prolific, you know, fertile yeah. uh, record. So I don't know if that gives you an early sort of insight. I mean, I could talk a little bit more, I suppose, about the L.A. because of the 70s, that was very different. As I said, you know, much, much more um, violent. He lived in in, in places like uh, Silver, uh, I mean, like Eagle Rock, I'm, I'm thinking of, or Silver Lake, which now, you know, kind of hipster um, um, redoubts, but in those days were really uh, marked by, um, you know, gang violence and and, and dealing. And of course, LAPD is an appallingly kind of racist uh, police force. I mean, as bad as anything 
any uh, in in the states. He was beaten up um, with his uh, by a couple of kind of LAPD undercover officers for you know for no reason at all. And he won a case. It took him years um, uh, to to do that. So that might give you a sense that I think that he was even he was very much aware of um, not just LA in a contemporary way though. I mean, he drew on um, extraordinary, rich cultural references. So he was deeply uh, imbued with the tradition of American film noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, directors like Nicholas Ray or Sam Fuller, filmmakers from the from the from the fifties and, and and early sixties, he was channeling um, um, the work, of course, pulp fiction work of people like Dashiell Hammett and. Um, uh, Raymond Chandler. He was very, very kind of enriched by that tradition, which again is associated with LA as the kind of city of, of noir. Yeah. So there was literary, there was cinematic, and then also musical. I mean, it was such a music city as yeah. well. All of these things. All, all these bands all. playing everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I think what's so interesting, though, and what I try to show is the way in which what becomes um, his mask, this kind of early jazz bohemian sort of drunken performer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was so good at it mm-hmm. that he, if you watch sort of uh, young weights on television, on American TV chat shows or whatever, they mm-hmm. can't tell whether it's real or not with his slurring, his his hunched figure, uh-huh. dressed like a tramp. Is he the thing itself or what? No, they, they, they really don't know how to play him. Of course, he, he was playing an act, but yeah. at some point the mask... Mm-hmm. kind of hardens into the face um and i think the drinking became quite real uh quite dependent um he later kicked it i mean he, he says rather interestingly that he actually heard better stories uh in alcoholic anonymous uh, meetings than he did at the bar you know um but all the way through that 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 period um he both is dealing with his father's legacy. Mm-hmm. He's the son of an alcoholic. So he knows the kind of damage, but also the kind of romanticism of, of the, 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 the toy stories, yeah. mm-hmm. the staying out all hours and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, yes, I think that's, that's, uh, that's one of the most sort of interesting and enigmatic qualities of Waits. It's like where Tom Waits is a kind of construction out of mm. all sorts of these elements. Yeah. I mean, just to give you an example, and I think one of his greatest songs um, is it, called Burma Shave. Yeah. And it's 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 a wonderful, rich, beautifully written, complex track, about six, seven minutes long. Mm-hmm. And what he does in it is he combines several things. He combines the autobiographical with the cinematic. Mm-hmm. So behind the song, there is a, a particular do- a film by uh, Nicholas Ray, a kind of Bonnie and Clyde film where the, 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 the man is played by Farley Granger, one of Waits' kind of favourite actors, because he combines this sort of baby-faced innocence with mm-hmm. a kind of deep criminality or juvenile delinquency. And so it's a classic American road fable. They're on the road. They're escaping from the law or whatever. But he also combines the autobiographical. His mm. father would take him on trips up in, uh, in, in uh, you know, 
on Route 66 or elsewhere. And so Burma Shave re registered in his mind as a young boy in the back of his father's car because there was an advertising hoarding. It doesn't actually exist. There's no place called Burma Shave. Mm -hmm. And so he would say to his dad, well, you know, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get to Burma Shave? So in the song, it becomes this kind of mythic noir destination where you're richly on the road to nowhere. And then he also weaves in another strand, which comes from a, a cousin of his, Mary, who, uh, sorry, Kareen, I think, who grows up in Marysville, a tiny town, here, literally, you know, a spot in the road, as it's called in the song. Okay. And one night, you know, she stands in front of Frosted Freeze and, you know, hitches a ride with some dubious character and she takes her all the way to L.A. So you've got, you know, the autobiographical, the personal, the cinematic, all yeah. woven into this rich, dense tapestry, you know. Yeah. And that, and that for me is the mark of the man. I mean, he's just a front round um, American, you know, writer. Uh, yeah. And people, obviously, uh, after Dylan's, you know, Nobel Prize, you know, mm -hmm. recognize the quality and the importance of, you know, song or writing. Yeah. Well, Waits is up there. Mm -hmm. Waiters up there. Um, I think he, you know, he is really quite front rank, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You um, you kind of touched on a little bit, but I want to kind of focus in a little bit. You know, you talked about initially it was this kind of honest take, and you got to live the life, and it was really autobiographical about his life. But that started to change in his years in L.A., and that kind of comes to life with the character of Frank that he brought to life over a trilogy of albums. That's from. Swordfish yes. Bones all the way to Rain Dog. Yeah, I'd love to hear you talk about how that kind of changed the way he was able to write about, uh, you know, write songs through different characters because things did change right then. I end the book really looking at a couple of songs from his great album, mm -hmm. Swordfish Bones, which is the last album of this sort of period. Oh, mm -hmm. um, and, 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 it's a very different album. It's an album where he literally moves away. Mm. It doesn't work with Bones Howe. He's been his producer for the uh, seven of the nine albums he's recorded. He breaks with the kind of gang at the Troubadour um, that he'd met or uh, lived with, with mm. Chucky Weiss, for example. Mm. And Kathleen Brennan is absolutely key in this because she says, well, look, you know, produce yourself, you know, mm. Really go for your own, um, you know, vision, and and it's it's a radically abrasive, percussively, you know, inventive, different album. And there are two tracks on that. One's called "In the Neighborhood," and the other is called uh, "Frank's," years, which then, as you say, becomes um, well uh, a, another album after "Rain Dogs," and two yeah. albums time, and then um, uh, an actual stage musical. Mm. Now his father's called Frank, and it's really the song of LA. I mean, song. Sorry, the song of farewell to LA, mm -hmm. in the sense that in the song, the current of the Frank, who's a sort of second-hand furniture salesman in the San Fernando Valley, comes back one night and just torches the house, you know, and then watches from his car, you know, the beauty of the frames licking up this kind of modern condo or. or house in the in the in the valley and then literally the last lines you know gets into his car uh, on the 101 which you know the, the hollywood freeway out of la 
and looks at looks at it in his rearview mirror. And that so he burns to to the ground his kind of LA life, which is exactly in a metaphorical way, of course, yeah. what, what Waits himself does. Yeah. With his with his wife Kathleen, he moves to New York. He becomes more of a kind of, I guess, a sort of avant-garde of international and um, the Europeans absolutely get sort sort fish So there's a there's a different stage in, in his music and in his life. Yeah. Of course, it's no accident that he calls him Frank, uh, uh, because also that's what reaching all the way back into his earlier life. Frank, um, I suppose his father metaphorically sets fire to the family home. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he finally, in a, in a very Waitsian, tangential kind of way, deals with the subject of being Frank's son. Um, and, then, and then there's also another really lovely sense of which he's, he becomes more successful in the 80s. He starts acting, as you know, he's in the Jarmish film Down by Law, for example. So his acting career is taking off. He's writing musical theatre and working with people like Robert Wilson and Jarmish, sort of, you know, auteurs and so forth. Um, but he's writing about Frank, whose life becomes ever more disastrous. You know, Tom is on the, on the rise, but his alter ego... You know, his doppelganger is, 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 everything is falling apart. So there's a nice kind of balance in terms of a sort of inverse logic there. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I mean, Swordfish Trombone, I think, to the later work, which, because you know, it's the Pandora's box, you know, it starts, there's a great track with the first track, you know, Underground. Mm which is just like the sound of these kind of, he described it as a sort of, you know, kind of mute dwarfs hammering away, you know. Uh, <laughs> and it's almost like this energies that he had, which had been, you know, contained with this mask. He finally rips off that mask yeah. and it bubbles up and explodes. And he becomes much more, I suppose, kind of Brechtian idea of the performer. Mm -hmm. So instead mm -hmm. of the romantic idea where you have to embody um, yeah. the, the, the art, as it were, mm -hmm. I mean, in Brechtian idea of performance, you can be anything. Yeah. You, you can be a mutant dwarf underground. You yeah. can be a lovelorn sailor on yeah. shore leave in Singapore. You can be someone stranded in 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 a, an Australian town with all the bars closed. You can be whatever you want, you know. Yeah. And he fractures his personality. And it's no it's no accident, I think, that his acting career takes off yeah. as he enjoys playing all sorts of different personas. And he's had an, an exceptionally good um cinematic career as yeah well, i mean that's know. that's the situation this that that kind of opened him up to two things and his penchant for musical theater at that time really hinted at and kind of led to this mm -hmm. this great acting career and i mean i think it'd be fun to even talk about that a little bit because that is something he did go into and there's some big names that kind of walk him into it and i mean speaking of francis ford coppola coppola is the key yeah. yeah coppola is the key he 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 tried to break away from la earlier in 1980 yep. um of years before he finally did and as you say you know it's uh, sort of fish trombones this watershed album is 83 but a couple of years before that um he's trying to kind of, and, and not succeeding he's sort of mm -hmm. a bit kind of lost in in, in la mm -hmm. and suddenly out of the blue comes the call from coppola Amazing. saying well you know i've heard this song um and the song was i don't talk to strangers a rare duet 
that he recorded are um, a couple of our albums ago um, um, with Bette Midler. And what the song had was it was essentially a dialogue between a man and a woman. A man's trying to pick a woman up at the bar. She fends him off. She says, you know, you're kind of cheap and, and, and cheesy and so forth. And I, I don't talk to strangers and so forth. But the song progresses and it, 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 it softens towards the end of it. So there's a kind of movement between the, 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 the two voices within it, which is cinema. You know, and, and Coppola hears this and thinks, ah, you know, this is the template for, you know, one from the heart, mm. uh, which essentially is attempt to kind of rework the, the romantic musical, you know, set in the sort of lush neons of, of Vegas. I need you to kind of do this soundtrack. And, and I want it to be this kind of jazz lounge sort of music. And typical waiters thinking, oh, well, you know, should have asked me like two or three years ago when I was into that, because now he's moved on. Now he's kind of into much more of an electrified sort of uh, New Orleans R&B. And so it's like, do I really have to sit down and kind of, you know, well, yes, you do, because it's a major Hollywood movie. And of course, <laughs> I do. And, and, and it's an absolutely brilliant uh, score. I mean, it really is. It's nominated for for an Oscar, and I think it's the best thing about you know a, a seriously flawed uh, film. Um, uh, you know, there's very interesting things about Coppola's film, sure. but the best is is Waits. Yeah. And so I think that that also, you know, he he in the in the in the um, in one from the heart, the score he uses the country and western singer, you know, Crystal Gale. Mm -hmm. as the other voice yeah. who's yeah. got such a different uh range and tone and to yeah. his own and he's having to write for a woman I mean, he's having to write for a different voice and different persona and i think that changes it um i think that also that experience of uh, of working with someone like 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 coppola um on a big hollywood production mm -hmm. um that that you know You've got to understand. I mean, his first albums, although they were, um, you know, you know, part of Warner's, it was sort of Asylum Electra, so they were fairly kind of, um, I suppose you say, boutique these days. Mm -hmm. um, label. Yeah. So you know, even though he'd been on the road and he'd been touring and he was recording album after album, uh, he wasn't getting a huge amount of attention. Um, where suddenly you you compose a lauded hollywood soundtrack you into a different you know different game you know yeah uh, so i think i think that was part of the breakthrough and coppola then cast him in um uh, he's got a small role in rumblefish outsiders the cotton club yeah yeah. Cotton club too. yeah and and um i think he's a very i think he's actually a very good actor a lot of um you know Act, uh, act, you know, performance like you know Bowie and, and Jagger, Jag, you know Jag, Jag, Jagger's always himself, really. Yeah. You know, they, they, they can project that 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 sort of persona. He was, um, uh, he was, he was absolutely and, terrific in um, the that recent Coen Brothers film in 2018, The Ballad of Buster Scraggs. He was oh yeah, as the, um, as the, uh, the 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 gold digger. Absolutely. Absolutely, that was like my favorite part of that film. It, yes, I agree. It was the best yeah. of those uh, four yeah. or six different uh, segments. 
That's right. And I think also his performance in um in, in Down by Law, that Jarmusch yeah. film, um where he plays opposite Robert Benini and and and, and John Lurie is is really excellent as well. Yeah. Um I, I another another of my favorite uh weights on on screen performances, if you like. Is um opposite uh is in shortcuts the Robert Alt film yeah. mm -hmm. um where he plays opposite Lily Tomlin who's yeah. an excellent actress and he you know he he absolutely matches her for um intensity and yeah. kind of weirdness and stuff uh, it's a great performance yeah absolutely what's what's interesting and, and and just you know you touched on it some but it comes up a whole bunch is that. Los Angeles, this place that really kind of, you know, uh, defined who he was at this time and really, you know, in these 10 years kind of made who he was and, you know, uh, launched him to the stardom that we we're just talking about. It wasn't it it did become uh, this trap to him, though. And he was it's he had to burn it down yeah, he I had think, to get out of there. Yeah, it's, it, and, and, I think so. I think yeah. he went through very different attempts to mine. Yeah. the the riches of uh of 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 la so as i've mentioned um there was the kind of foreign affairs for going to that mm -hmm. that album is perhaps the most imbued with uh film noir if you look at the cover of that he's shot by um george harrell mm -hmm. a very famous hollywood uh photographer who yeah. shot you know garbo and Dietrich and all of the the MGM stars, um, like Joan Crawford, etc. So mm. it's deliberately kind of in the kind of monochromatic, deep, deep shadow, or whatever. Yeah. However, yeah. there's a there's, there's a way in which LA LA allows you to kind of make your own myth as well. It's such mm. a kind of a place of dreams and therefore projection. Mm -hmm. So the next album to that, you know, um, Blue Valentine, um, is is really, really interesting because that's the kind of Ricky Lee Jones era. Yeah. And so rather than having to kind of use, if you like, the sort of Bonnie and Clyde from cinema, the the the, the Farley uh, Granger, he he and, and Ricky Lee become these sort of romantic dreamers. It's it's noticeable in that album, for example, that she's uh, photographed and recognizable um uh on the uh, in in inner sleeve and on the back cover mm -hmm. the first time really in a Waits album that anybody else is there and Chucky Vice is also yeah, as a slightly kind of weird voyeur is 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 is, is in is in the mix there and there was something of a sort of uh, triangular nature to their relationship these three romantic dreamers i think as ricky lee jones called them um and that's really interesting because also there's a, another kind of film reference i suppose for that is you know star is born where that kind of uh trope or or, or, or narrative of a, of a of a male artist uh discovering a younger female artist who then suddenly outstrips him yeah. And there's a kind of sense of like that. That's almost uh, what happened. You know, the Ricky Lee Jones partly, you know, modeled herself on on aspects of weights. I mean, that nothing wrong with that. I mean, all 
song writers and 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 you know musicians have to pick up their influences from whenever wherever and waits as you know does it himself of course you know bits of sinatra bits of dylan bits of all kinds of, of performance ray charles for example a huge influence but but she does and 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 early Ricky Lee Jones is very much exploring, you know, the same kind of slightly, you know, down at heel demi monde of of uh, of of LA. She, you know, Chucky's in Love, which is her great sort of breakthrough single, single um, is you know based on a little conversation she has with waits where he turns having had a phone call from from Chucky from Denver or whatever. He says, "Oh, Chucky's in love again." And, and so the life feeds into the songs and mm -hmm. she becomes hugely successful. Warner get behind her and promote her. And all of a sudden, you know, somebody who's actually put out, you know, seven albums is being eclipsed by someone who's, this is her first album or whatever. Well, but clearly the, the relationship doesn't, you know, doesn't last and can't really take that advice or fairly strung out with drugs at this stage. And he, he cleans up his act, mm -hmm. um, you know, largely. <laughs> um, so I mean, what I'm saying about Blue Blue Valentine is Blue Valentine's yet another kind of um, attempt to create a sort of contemporary urban myth that, that, that he, instead of having to assemble using literature and using film and and, mm -hmm. and all of these cultural references, there it is. He's engaged in a sort of um, a passionate kind of affair, uh, and he records that. So the many of the songs on Blue Valentine have references to the little blue jay, you know, uh, in the red dress. She wears this kind of scarlet dress. The colour red is, which is the red for blood as well, of course, is, you know, throughout that album. So I, I think what's so interesting about L.A. and, and Waits is that there are all of these different layers. And that's what I was trying to kind of excavate um, in, in, in the book. I mean, why, why I chose the title Song Noir is from a phrase that uh, that I really loved that, that Waits said once, that he sees his songs as movies for the ear. Yeah. And that's exactly they what they are. They're, they are. They're layered. Yeah. Um, and so hence, I think that Song Noir seemed to be absolutely right, that, that he found uh, an audio equivalent of L.A.'s greatest form which is the, the the noir genre that it gives to the world yeah no you're right his aesthetic response to the city of angels you know his song noir is as lasting and distinctive as anything written by raymond chandler nathaniel west or charles bukowski and that that's truly a fact what i really love too is um you know and you point out towards the end how you know some of the songs kind of kind of can still ring true about la and speaking to skid row when it's called, talking about tom Trubart's Blues or On the Nickel, it still does that. So a lot of it's still enduring. But then you also have this idea of of, of these albums and, and your book, too, is as a time capsule, really captures yes. what L.A. was and, and because of the way he was so vividly bringing it to life. And so it's got those two aspects. It endures and it also captures a moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's the kind of complete paradox that uh, yeah. an artist like, uh, you know, Waits wants to explore. He wants to really understand... Uh, incredibly sort of deep level the way in which music you know is of its time and yet if you if you're true to it you know uh, if you capture the the the, the, the song it was kind of describes this process of uh, of, uh, of of songwriting as almost 
you know, capturing an animal, you know, you've got to kind of somehow creep up on it and, and you know, it. and be and be open to how it, it you know, receptive to it. Mm -hmm. But if you do, then it's a true time capsule. And every time you listen to that song, mm -hmm. you're taken back and you're taken back because it has its own kind of inner energy and, mm -hmm. and life. Yep. And I think that's right. You think about L.A., and you think about weights. I mean, the Tropicana's gone, long since gone. Um, the, the Troubadour's got no, you know, nothing like the kind of music energy and life that it has. Yep. Cantors, you know, the all-night um, LA, Delhi is still there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can actually go on weights tours of LA. I think yeah, do they do that? Is that once a year, the, the crawling down Cuyahoga? Is that once a year? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right, you know. Awesome. But but the thing about it is that the better response isn't to kind of look at the kind of the bit of tarmac where he he actually recorded the uh, the video of uh, of in the neighborhood for example yep. is to listen to the songs because yeah. they still live they're still these active kind of noirs mm -hmm. I mean I love I mean I love some of the later work um, which is very different I, I I think and there's been a tendency. Uh, partly because I think he's he's you know wanted to acknowledge quite rightly the extraordinary um, contribution that his wife has made uh, to his, his work and and she's a co-writer she brought and enlarged I think all kinds of you know musical influence she brought to to his notice yep. but uh, the, the the early work of course is largely you know, without Kathleen's influence, yeah. and it's tended to be undervalued compared to the to the to, to the later work. Yep. Um, but the, the, these these songs are of outstanding value. As you said, you know, you know, you listen to Tom Traubert's blues. Mm -hmm. um, brackets three sheets to the wing in Copenhagen. Well, he may have been drunk and thinking of Copenhagen, but the inspiration literally came of him going downtown yep. you know buying a pint of rice squatting there with the, the down and outs, um listening to all of their stories yep. and the and and, the, and and you know bones Harris, his, his producer at the time said literally he went home threw up sat down at, 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 at his piano and, and and composed it and it's astonishingly moving song still i mean a sense of Genius. That what it does, you know, that song is that it, it uses obviously the the melody of uh, of waltzing Matilda, yeah. which is lilting and light. Yeah. But it starts with this rasping voice, you know, wasted and wounded, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a kind of depth and a and a and, a, and an abrasive quality uh, that you feel like he has lived, and, and that the singer yeah. kind of knows uh, the. The depth to which you know that the, the world has shrunk, as he says, to a kind of battered suitcase. But he never kind of reduces these men to just being, you know, uh, ciphers or examples. He keeps their kind of human dignity, but net doesn't shy away either from the yeah. damage, the self damage that mm -hmm. they 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 have done. I mean, that's an astonishing song, one of my favorite songs. I, I, I think of all, of all absolutely, you know.
Absolutely. I absolutely love it. Yeah, no, that's the thing that's when, when reading a book like this I and mean, in your book, I've had the music all these early years, the music's just been playing in my place the entire time. And I've just been, not only do you get to within your written word experience, so yes. much, but I would just listen in and it just really, it's, it could be all encompassing in a fun way if you let it. And I just, I love this journey into yes. this world through your book. I, it was I, so what I, I, I do, I do love, um, in in terms of the later writing, yeah, I mean, it's not really you know as I say part of my book which focuses you know exclusively really on the first ten years. Uh-huh. But there's a kind of universality to um, to his writing. If you look at, at, at um, a song, for example, like "Hold On," yeah. late on, um, mm-hmm. what he does is he's almost kind of like uh, something like kind of Burns, you know, My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose, for example. He's kind of pushing his songwriting to a kind of ageless, timeless sort of quality, uh, which is very different, you know, from from the early years, which, as I said, are kind of marked by uh, by place, uh, yeah. by LA and, and, and by time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the, the times that he was yeah, there. Nothing vague about his references early on, you know? No, no, but I think I mean at his greatest, um, uh, I, I I think he pulls it off, and yeah, I we, think there's a, you know, there is a real timeless and universality to the to the to the later song songwriting. Yeah, but I love the human struggle. I love the all they all deal with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's very. It, it's times. It's very odd, though. I mean, in the sense that um, he's so keen to kind of record his LA life. There's a, for example, there's a great track on uh, Nighthawks at the Diner, mm-hmm. um, um, where he literally, in an almost a sort of cartographical way, tries yeah. to map LA onto his body. So he, it's kind of, you know, talks about this emotional weather. Yeah. And, and, and so there are all these topographical references to you know, uh, Los Angeles streets as mm-hmm. though they were the kind of key to his psyche and to yeah. his uh, well-being, so that kind of merging of of, of self and city, mm-hmm. of of life and myth, very very personal, really early on, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. It's, I just, it's, it's, he's a genius. I love talking about even the before and after, and just, it's just, it's his his whole career is absolutely fascinating, and the way you just kind of absolutely. get ten years. So cool. I mean, I think his emotional. Uh, I mean, his 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 musical range as as well. Yeah. Um, if you listen to the first album, uh, you know, closing time. Yep. Um, which is his most sort of folk inflected, Definitely. and you listen to old fifty five or Rosie, for example. Uh, sort of ballads, if you like, on that on that album. Yeah, the yeah. voice is so sweet and and almost kind of light or whatever. Yeah. That certainly changes. Oh yeah, no, there's a great story uh, that uh-huh. he that he tells, which I put in the book, which intensively in his early years. I mean, constantly when I mean, he wasn't you know writing and experiencing the sort of the bars and the life of LA, he was just on the road and. Um, he, he created this kind of deliberate sort of rod for his own back. So he'd, he'd book his band uh-huh. into some kind of worst flop house, uh, you know, in town. Because he said, you know, he wanted to be a sort of professional eavesdropper, you know. <laughs> and there were great stories where, you know, he'd be in his room and watching kind of TV or whatever. 
And, you know, couples would just kind of walk into his room, you know, and and, yeah. and, 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 and start making out or whatever. And it's like, look, this, it's, it's not your room, you know. It's like, <laughs> um, there's a great story as well. I mean, he had this manager, Herb Cohen, uh-huh. who was a real sort of um, bruiser. I mean, yeah. a classic, you know, uh-huh. in the music industry bruiser. And he said, you know, if you're going to have a manager, you probably want someone like that. Yeah. But he was—he booked him into all sorts of gigs with with supporting Frank Zappa uh-huh. when Zappa was at his height, uh, hockey or football stages or whatever. And uh-huh. he's doing himself, you know, piano and and certain venue. And he would have to kind of warm up the audience, yeah. thousands and thousands of these people um, who were just chanting, you know. You know, well, you know, we want Zappa, we want Zappa. And he says, he said, basically, Frank Zappa used him as like some sort of anal thermometer, you know, to kind of gauge the sort of the, the strength or the warmth of the audience. And he said, uh, I always love this. He says, like, you know, 20 years later, he still wakes up having nightmares uh, about opening for Zappa. Wow. The audience would storm the stage, you know, so it was like Frankenstein. They'd come at you with kind of light, tor- you know, torches and so forth. Yeah, <laughs> no I think this, these early years certainly left their scars. Yeah, know? absolutely. I just I do want to point out to listeners, like, and just you mentioned it there. We have only you know kind of touched on some of the stories that are in this book yeah. and that influence things. There's so much more to get into, even just like all the stories from the Tropicana all the way through the time we talked about it. And it's a thrill. It's a quite a ride. Your book, and I'm just yeah. so glad. Yeah, one more, please. We haven't really talked about the Tropicana, which yeah. was sort of LA's, I suppose, version of the Chelsea. Uh, That's the first uh, thing I, I, I kept phone, thinking of, how this was LA's number. Chelsea Hotel. Yeah. He put his phone number on the back of an album. I think it was on Small Change. So cool. And so, so he'd be kind of rung up by fans, you know, in the kind of middle of the night or whatever. Yeah. You know, these strange sort of uh, young women from Japan yeah. would arrive and camp out on his on it on his on his porch <laughs> and it's like well, you, really you know it's like, and it's almost deliberately i think in the sense yeah. that he didn't want a kind of gap mm-hmm. between the life of a performer and the life outside so then there's no time when he's not tom waits you know he's because there's the 24 7 he's having to kind of live like this um dissolute and 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 sort of you know life on the edge <laughs> absolutely yeah no the spartacus on tv story was great and just yeah the legacy of that hotel was just fun to fun to fun to learn you know from the van morrison's there i mean everybody zeppelin everything that's her where uh jim wrote um la woman too so yeah it's that's uh, right that's right no it's an incredibly um you know rich uh you know, place of, of so many music uh, associations you know oh, as you oh, say yeah. you know, jim morrison but also van morrison kind of wrote yep. there mm-hmm. new york dolls you know like to stay there and then of course because tom waits was this sort of uh, the artist in residence almost <laughs> you want to see tom go yeah go go late night to the tropicana uh, and you know to the tropicana and there he would be or whatever then of course then visiting bands want to kind of come sure. there and actually yeah. the kind of nature of the hotel or motel changes and yeah. you know because because of this and eventually he just literally has to kind of check out to find somewhere quiet where he can actually kind of work a bit you know get out of that mess that's awesome exactly. Alex, thank you so much this is great i really i like no, I said, at all, my guy you know really enjoyed obviously talking with, with yeah. you and, and and about about tom who's uh, a subject i mean can i just say i mean 
because I've written about it, you know, I often write sort of essays on yep. uh, writers and so forth, London uh-huh, Review, uh-huh. LA Review, books. Yep. And it's quite often when you kind of go deep into a cultural figure, you, you start to like them less and less. Yeah, because, that was the other way, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. Scott Fitzgerald, who's writing, I really like, you know, is, is a kind of prig and a snob and you know, yeah, it kind yeah, of yeah. starts to get on your nerves after a while. But the more you know about Tom, yeah. I mean, the more he's a kind of mensch. He's sort like, of full of humour and insight. I like them more and more every single chapter I got through in this book. <laughs> I like them more. It just respected him more and more. And I didn't think that was possible. I mean, I, I just yeah. the way I look at him and it just... It's 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 wild that 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 happened. I love to hear that happened with you because I mean your deep yes. dive was huge into Tom, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, no, no. He's it was a great pleasure, a great subject to write about. Yeah, awesome. Well, it's great to spread the word about it. So, Alex, I appreciate your time. Thank and you very well, much. Thanks. Thank you for coming on the program. I appreciate it. No pleasure, Michael. Maverick 
This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.